Welcome to Peel Pod's Environmental Law, debating and discussing environmental law and justice for everyone. Brought to you by Public Interest Environmental Law UK. Welcome back to the Peel Pod, a podcast hosted by Peel UK. In this episode, Florencia and Shuku discuss with Paul Paulusland, a barrister at the Garden Court Chambers, the role lawyers have on the current and future practice of environmental law. They also discuss the issues of the rights of nature within the UK. For new listeners to the podcast, Pill UK, which is Public Interest Environmental Law, is an association which was created and led entirely by students since 2007 to champion and raise awareness of environmental justice issues. Pill UK has continued to host its annual conference, which is a diverse platform bringing a range of practitioners, academics, and members of the public to engage with problems relating to the environment and encourage solutions. The theme of this year's conference is Unchaining Environmental Law, which will be hosted completely online. Details of the panelists will be announced on our LinkedIn and Instagram page, and you'll also find our Eventbrite link on both of the social pages as well. If you haven't already, please grab yourself a ticket, and we hope to see you there. Now back to the episode. So hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're very happy because we have our first guest speaker for this episode. But before introducing him, I am, we're very glad to say that we have our confirmed date for the conference. It's going to take place virtually the 22nd and 23rd of April 2022. Um, you can get your tickets by um via our website, that is piel.org.uk. Uh, there's an even bright link there, so you can get your tickets free just for re- the registration to the events. It's gonna be very interesting and just keep um, following the, the information in our platforms, Instagram, LinkedIn, the website. So, uh, well, today we have an important guest. His name is Paul Polisland. He is a barrister, member of the Garden Court Chambers. He is also an activist and a recently co-founder of Lawyers for Nature, which is a community interest company that aims to democratize access to legal support for those fighting to preserve and protect the natural world. So his areas of practice are protest rights, commercial and business ethics, environmental law, employment law, housing law, and the rights of Romani gypsy and travelers as a boat dweller himself. He is now actually going to give the episode from his boat. Um, so today we're going to talk about the two important issues, which is the practice of environmental law and the role of lawyers uh, regarding environmental issues. And one of the most important issues here is the rights of nature. So first things first, why did you choose to become an environmental lawyer and how the interest for the rights of nature started? Yeah, so um, I'm going to throw in a curveball right at the start and say that I have never wanted to be, nor do I consider myself to be an environmental lawyer. Um, (laughs) um, uh, So for me, the practice and the idea of environmental law is um, as human-made regulation that we're applying to what we consider to be the environment. Um, and uh, I don't see myself as, as practicing that. I've never actually trained as an environmental law. Um, although I've had to pick it up in order to try and protect nature, um, I don't, as I say, see myself as that. Um, 
and especially at the bar you can see many people who would describe themselves as environmental lawyers whose the, the net effect of their actions is great devastation and destruction towards the natural world and I don't particularly want to put myself in the same in the same category um, as people who are taking vast sometimes actually most of the time hundreds of thousands of pounds a year um, in service of those who are destroying the earth um, and so I, I tend to sort of um, describe myself as a wild lawyer, lawyer for nature, um, as a way of kind of distinguishing that and saying that my uh, overriding aim and focus is on uh, protecting, uh, protecting the earth, protecting the natural world um, in whatever way I can do that. Sometimes that's environmental law, but um, a lot of the time not. Um, and in terms of how I became um, a lawyer for nature or a wild lawyer, um, it really came actually through my love of nature first rather than through the law. So um, I became a lawyer um, or became a barrister. I was actually quite weird, one of those weird teenagers that always wanted to be a barrister, which I look back on a slight amount of cringe now, to be honest. Um, and uh, I went to Cambridge, got my law degree, became a barrister, thought this is me made now, I've got my career and I can make lots of money. And then I fell in love with nature during the course of my 20s. Um, and it became one of my, probably my overriding source of, of joy uh, and love in this world, um, the, the natural world. And I was becoming a kind of an activist for nature in my spare time. So planting trees and um, starting to restore rivers. And I then sort of realized that it was kind of odd that I wasn't, uh, manifesting that in my job at all so in my job I was a kind of civil commercial lawyer um quite a lot of personal injury law and then on the weekends I was planting trees I was like maybe I should also um be doing something to save trees um and so that's when I started taking these steps into becoming um a lawyer for the earth well thank you that was amazing so my second question is should all lawyers slash wild lawyers that are interested in environmental law, should I advocate for its protection? And is there any special skill or expertise needed? So do you mean, should all lawyers be advocating for the earth and for nature? Um, I mean, if we want our civilization to survive the rest of the century, then definitely yes. Um, <laughs> um, yes, and to, to me, the, the climate and ecological crisis is the fundamental issue that's facing our society in the coming decades and, and over the rest of the century. And lawyers have a crucial role to play in that. And what's interesting is that the way that law is currently kind of divided up, we think that only you know, environmental lawyers have a, have a role to play in that. Um, and actually, the crisis is so deep and the changes we need are so deep. In our society that almost every lawyer in almost every field um, has a has a role to play even in fields or maybe even especially in fields that we don't necessarily um, uh, connect with the earth and, and with nature so for instance um, corporate lawyers um, are seen very much as not not there to protect the earth and indeed many times they're not but actually a corporate lawyer who 
holds the desire to protect the earth in their heart can do a huge amount and have a, have a massive impact, way more than perhaps lawyers like me can, because they're, they're right in the heart of that system. And for instance, how we, um, how we reconcile the right of companies to make profits with the continued existence of the of a habitable earth and um, our civilization is one of the key questions of the century and a corporate lawyer would have a huge role in, in trying to work that out um, and actually we at lawyers for nature are starting to sort of start, sort of start doing that sort of working out what um, it would look like for companies to take into account nature in their decision making and how we can how we can make that happen legally but I mean, I can, I can almost say if you can ask about any area of law, I can give you some ideas about what um, what that area of law could, uh, what that lawyer in that area of law could do. For instance, criminal law, um, as people around the world rise up in activism to protect the earth and to stop climate change, they need people who are going to represent them. And I have amazing colleagues at Garden Court who day in, day out represent environmental protesters and either stop them going to prison or at least reduce the prison sentences like their role is vital in climate activism and as I, said, I can take you through almost every single area of law and say we all have a role to play in that and is there any special skill or expertise needed in your opinion to advocate for the protection of the environment in terms of specialist skills, I, I would sort of say no, <laughs> in a sense, because it, it links back into what I just said is that whichever area you're coming from, you can have an impact and there is a role for you to play. The key thing that you need to have is a, uh, is a love for the earth and a love for nature and a desire to protect it. That's, that's the overriding thing that you need to have within you. And the rest of it sort of follows from that. And I would genuinely rather have um, a lawyer in a non-environment and typically environmental area of law who has a love for nature and wants to do whatever they can within their area to protect the earth than to have a hotshot environmental lawyer who doesn't care about the earth and therefore will likely spend the majority of their time acting for those who want to destroy it. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say to motions, the key thing is fall in love with nature and hold that love within you because the the way the legal profession works is it will try it will try and draw it out of you it will try and sap it out of you um and you you really got to hold you really got to hold that as you go through your career yeah um picking on that last point um i think it's interesting um the role of lawyers and trying to break up this like market because we need like it's our job to get clients and and to you know provide the service so how you as a barrister you're like in the heart of that market um how do you think that can can lawyers have a say to change this market dynamics and and make the people fall in love with nature as like that people being our clients as well um yes albeit you know, the, the difficult question, and one I imagine we're going to keep coming back to in this discussion is one of money. Um, there are an unending source of clients of people who want to protect nature and who want to take, have your service to do that. I, in Lawyers for Nature, we get contacted on a daily basis by groups up and down the country trying to protect nature, and we just don't have the resources to be able to help all of them. Um, and the, the key question is one of money. Um, if you want to be paid the average barrister salary you will struggle to do that just acting for 
nature and the earth and people trying to protect nature. Um, in, in some ways, if, if you're truly cognizant of the depth of the crisis we face, that shouldn't worry you too much because unless we change things significantly within the next within the coming decades um you won't be able to use that money for a lot anyway um but unfortunately there is a a very short-sighted sometimes yeah a very short-sighted aspect of humanity where people um just keep on taking money for um for things which will cause destruction on a greater on a societal level um and don't necessarily think about that too too deeply and i think we see that a lot in the legal profession um, of people taking huge sums of money to fuel the, the current crisis. Also, do you think um, the practice of law in environmental matters is changing? Knowing about, knowing about environmental law, is it a valued asset or is it still seen as a good cause? A valued asset by who? <laughs> <laughs> um, in that context by companies because obviously you were talking about how some barristers and some um foundations are motivated by money aspect rather than um having a huge passion for the environment so in value asset in that sense i mean one way or another environmental law is going to is, is going to become bigger and bigger over the next few years um as the scale of the crisis that we face becomes apparent to more and more people um I, I guess there's a question of of how that manifests it does does it manifest in greenwashing or does it manifest in real true protection of of nature and the earth e even more than that actually um even if something could be seen as good for say stopping or reducing carbon a lot of that might be not so good for protection of nature and those kinds of trade-offs are starting to become apparent and that's why that's why i'm urging a kind of deeper connection to nature and the protection of nature for those who want to go into this area because um just just becoming an environmental lawyer might have been fine in the 1990s but i don't think it's going to actually cut it in terms of the real changes we need over the coming decades, which is effectively a complete reimagining of our society and the way that we uh, connect to and interact with the earth, nature, um, and the more than human. To add on that question, so what kind of change do you hope to see in the future in environmental lawyers? Because you just stated that in the past, being an environmental lawyer was just enough, but now we need more. What is something that what do we as humans need to see more in our legal field? Yeah, I mean, we need to see more advocating for the earth and for the earth to be and, and for nature to be fairly represented in our legal system, which it manifestly isn't at the moment. And it, it isn't on a number of levels. So, for instance, we, we talked already about money. Um, you know, um, the laws that apply to nature that you know there's there's no actual stats in this as far as i'm aware and I've, i really would like some and i keep i keep asking various chambers and law firms for how much money do you spend advocating for the interest of nature or against the interest of nature those stats aren't available my best guess is probably easily two-thirds three-quarters against nature probably more because of course um those who want to use and or 
damage the earth, have a monetary interest in the way that nature doesn't. But of course, it goes deeper than that, because even if um, both sides uh, had the money, same amount of money available to have their interests represented before the law, nature is currently without rights and without legal personhood. So in a sense, the, the best we can do is a kind of um, uh, loco parentis model of, of, of representing nature. So, you know, we have some humans who live near a tree and therefore kind of argue for it. Um, but nature is actually barely, is, is not representative for our legal system. And so we need to go even deeper and say, actually, um, how do we, well, firstly, how do we recognize the rights of nature? What are they? What, what would legal personhood look like? And how can we incorporate that within our legal system? And that's a whole different um, ballpark to saying, you know, in what circumstances can you make a TPO, tree, tree preservation order? You know, um, what should the details of a new wastewater framework directive look like? There's an entirely different question and one that goes a lot deeper than most lawyers are usually willing to consider. Um, I did a talk uh, for the European Bar Association in spring last year and it was me and three qcs um so it was like an environmental spotlight day which in itself was seen as quite radical actually for this group they were like oh let's go really radical the environmental day there's there's three presentations about kind of you know the law as it current environmental law often quite detailed about european directives and then me at the end being like why we should give legal rights to rivers and um i felt a bit like one of those um segments on the news when you know they have like lots of serious stories and at the end they have like a story of a budgie that's lent to skateboard or something just to like bring a bit of light relief towards the end um but it also almost all the lawyers there were like wow i've never even thought i've never even thought about the idea that we don't give legal rights and personalities in nature and actually it makes a lot of sense when you think about it and that's increasingly what i find um and that to me is the the direction we need to be going in um in the future of environmental law uh, so uh due to your history fighting for the rights of nature i have so many questions but i think we don't have enough time to cover them uh, go on go on keep, keep throwing them <laughs> but maybe i think it would be interesting if you can tell us like a very important symbolic case where you and which struggles did you face the like fighting for that case or like the case that really made you feel like oh i need to start being uh, advocating for the rights of nature like full time yeah i mean it is the most obvious one is the one i often talk about so i hope if people have, have heard the story before they don't mind but um it was for me the sheffield tree um situation which in in brief for those that don't know it was um the city council wanted to chop down well city council in in Cahoots with a private equity firm in charge of fixing the streets of Sheffield wanted to chop down 17,500 mature street trees in the city, which is, when you think about it, a vast amount, um, because they were effectively um, uh, damaging the pavement. Um, and local people, local sort of nature guardians, I guess, rose up and were like, just not having it. Um, and I originally got involved um, because uh local protesters the way they were dealing with the threat to the tree was just standing underneath them well initially they actually brought judicial review to say that this policy was wrong 
and that that failed so we can see there automatically the limits of conventional envir environmental law you know you do a judicial review of the policy oh it failed so what we just say goodbye to seventeen and a half thousand street trees and local people said no um and went that <laughs> went a further step was that like, actually maybe we need to do peaceful direct action which with them was standing under the standing under the trees and I still almost get goosebumps when I think about it, like what that actually entailed. Some people basically gave up their lives to stand under trees for two years uh, in all weathers um, and with like police brutality, um, legal threats of losing their house in junctions and this kind of stuff. And, and they kept on going. And um, I, I was involved in one of the initial skirmishes where the police tried to arrest and basically wrote an advice and saying why the police arrest was rubbish, which it was. And some people got compensation for it a couple of years later um and um i i then became their kind of go-to lawyer i guess um which was interesting because as a lawyer there was very little that i could proactively do to win the fight you know a lot of the time when when someone um when people come to a lawyer for environmentalism like aha you can say your magic legal spells and save this tree and actually there's nothing i could do they'd lost the jr the policy was there it was lawful ostensibly there's nothing I could do. So all I could do was to support those protesters as much as possible in what they were doing. Um, and um, after the police went away, the council then went to get one of these anti-protest injunctions. I'm sure many of you will have heard quite a lot about. They're now being used against Insulate Britain. Um, and the uh, council was successful in getting that. And a lot of people were, um, were scared by it. And a couple of people weren't. And there was a real... Uh, I don't know how to put it, sort of Emperor's New Clothes or Spartacus moment where just a couple of people, including um, someone uh, I knew, one of the protests called Calvin, just said, actually, he wrote on Facebook, I disagree with this injunction and I know it's illegal, but I'm still going to stand under these trees and basically I don't care. Um, <laughs> and I, I saw that and I, I really admired that that bravery to stand up for what you believe in. And I basically wrote to him and said, you know, whatever happens, I'll represent you for free in any proceedings that result from this. Um, and then sure enough, um, he, he had to call on that promise because a few months later he was he was up in court for breaking it. And it wasn't an easy case because um, he'd written on Facebook saying he was going to break it and he did. <laughs> but he, he then got a suspended prison sentence for contempt of court. But in writing what he did, he made loads of other people think, actually, maybe I can stand up for this too. And the publicity that resulted from their trial brought ever more um, attention to their cause, effectively. You know, and the more people said, what, you're going to send someone to prison for standing under a tree? This is mad. What, what are you on? And then more people started coming to the streets. And eventually, the law came up against its inability, which is that there's a limit, a social limit, depending on the circumstances, as to how many people you can send to prison which is a basic fact that exists um that limit is in different places so for interstate britain it's actually a lot more because you're you're threatening the whole economic system they probably can send quite a lot of people to prison and they will but for standing under a tree that the law really is not willing to send hundreds of ordinary people to prison for standing under a tree peacefully because it, it makes it look ridiculous which it would which it was and so um to cut a long story short, eventually, although the um, uh, although the um, council had all the legal remedies it needed to, to chop these trees down, practically 
in the end it couldn't because every time they tried um the streets were filled with people it was costing them huge amounts of money in policing security costs everything else and they were like actually maybe we can try and have a different route which was to um use engineering methods to save these trees and as it turned out and so this this is the key part about all of this when they tried that method they found out that actually it was perfectly possible to save every single one of these trees all of these trees they've gone to the high court and said there's literally nothing else we can do we have to fell them turns out all it took was a day with some guys with a spade and a, and a curb cutting machine and they managed to save all of these trees and not as far as i'm aware not not a single one of the trees that were threatened is now actually um at, at risk which is incredible but it, there's so many lessons here to unpick about how ordinary environmental law um operates you know like when it came down to the initial contract and deciding on that there was nothing about the the trees right to exist or the beauty and the joy and the wonder that these trees bring to local people. It was like, um, council has the right under this section of the highways act to fell them. Yeah, nothing we can do, bye. Um, also believing at um, taking it at face value what the council was saying and what they were doing, um, using an incredibly, an incredibly draconian power under a POTUS injunction to ban protest also into the role of ordinary environmental lawyers. So uh, Landmark Chambers uh, is known as a leading environmental set. Their only role in the Sheffield tree debacle was to take at times, I think up to 25,000 pounds for two days work to try and put people in jail for standing under trees. Yeah. And that, that was a moment where I was like, actually these mainstream environmental lawyers have got it wrong a lot of the time. You know, there was like me and some other lawyers on on pro bono or, or low amounts of money trying to defend these people. And then these, you know, so-called environmental lawyers were taking huge amounts of money to destroy the environment and put people in jail who were trying to protect it. Um, and finally, yeah, the role of ordinary people as guardians of nature feels really important. And that role extends beyond even when the law says this nature has to go or that we can't protect this nature. Ordinary people have a huge role in, in protecting it. And, and the magic of that is that we don't have to wait for more lawyers to be trained or more lawyers to stand up and protect nature. Anyone has a huge role to play. A lot of these people who were key in saving the Sheffield trees were just ordinary people who just went outside their door and stood under a tree. And they had a far greater role in protecting those trees than, even, than I could as a lawyer. And definitely a far better role than most so-called environmental lawyers in in protecting those trees and that goes the same for rivers you know are are you protecting a river more by um uh, assisting and advising water companies on how they can pour sewage into them or are you assisting by going there to your river and monitoring that sewage holding the water companies to account and taking rubbish out mm. i think the latter Thank you very much. It's very Sorry, that was quite that was quite a long answer, but that that one case <laughs> really it. it really encapsulates so many of the different issues around what what environmental law is and what it means to be a law an environmental lawyer versus a lawyer who's committed to the earth or protecting nature. Yeah, I think it it also relates a lot with the societal change. Like if people people sometimes it's like a lot progressive more progressive than the law itself like law sometimes is like written in stone and we need this momentum this social 
push if you want uh, to to make it change. So I think this is like a, a pretty like beautiful case study on how you can do that as well. Yeah, it's like it's a lot of lawyers think the only way you can change law is um, is to get a majority in parliament to vote on it. But actually, forgetting the entire way that that protest, direct action, civil disobedience, and indeed societal attitudes shape the law and mm. what law is and isn't enforceable. Um, and that's something that lawyers often forget, I think. To add on what you were saying, because obviously I study law and I've learned about environmental law, I thought that the way that society could take action is through legal remedies such as a ju judicial review, but you just stated in that case that they tried to take a ju judicial review and it failed. So do you think that society has more, should try to use legal means or should they use their voice as a way to advocate for change? We, we use any means at our disposal, mm. right? Um, Non-violently, of course. Um, <laughs> just make that clear for anyone listening. Um, yeah, peace, any, any peaceful means at our disposal. Um, mm. And um, sometimes sometimes those are legal. You know, if, if you've got a, a perfectly good judicial review that's got good prospects that would stop nature being destroyed, like, go ahead. Yeah, crowdfund it, get it out there, make it happen. Great. You know, um, recently the Bethnal Green Mulberry tree was saved. The, the oldest tree in East London was saved from being destroyed by a developer by a judicial review. Great. Yeah. Perfect. You don't have to stand underneath it. Everyone, everyone can go about and do other things. They don't stand under, under a tree for a year, you know? Great. But the, the key issue is if that fails and, and if the law isn't enough, which it isn't in a lot of respects, because the law doesn't recognise the rights of nature and in many ways environmental regulations are very weak, mm. you know, what, what, do you, what do you do about that? Do you just kind of go, oh, well, the law says this, I guess we'll just watch the earth be destroyed around us? Or do you say, no, I'm going to do what I peacefully can to to protect it um you know as an example i um so i i sort of i learned that technique from the people in sheffield and i've applied it in my own life um i was i was asleep on my boat during the just before lockdown two years ago now and i heard chainsaws from nearby i was like oh god what's that is the noise that really sets me on edge i'm like some something's probably being destroyed um and uh, i rushed i was asleep and i rushed out of my boat and i saw they were like trying to chop a tree down a beautiful old tree next to our moorings yeah. and um it was next to a public footpath and i was like wearing my bunny onesie which i sleep in and i literally was like it's sort of waded into a pile of nettles in my bunny onesie and just stood there i was like i'm i'm not leaving this is a public footpath i'm allowed to be here legally and you're not taking the tree um and they, they went away you know at in that point a legal remedy wouldn't work it, even if i had tried to get a, t a tpo on it, it the tree would already be gone you know it would be a pile of logs and you know that tree that tree still stands now and it wouldn't have done had i not taken that action and i think a lot more people are waking up to the idea that we can um just through peaceful action stand up for nature and that that is a, a valuable um complement to legal roots but of course the law, law has a role to play in that right like the fact i knew that because i was on a public footpath that actually what i was doing was not a criminal offense so if the police had come i could have spoken to them and said look this i'm on a public footpath i'm allowed to be here there's literally they haven't got a closure order on the public footpath 
what are you going to do? If it was on private land, I'd know, aha, well, this is going to be aggravated trespass. They can arrest me and remove me. So, you know, you know, you can say to people, make sure you're on a public footpath. As long as there's a tiny bit of tree overhanging it, then you're golden. <laughs> you're perfectly entitled to stand there. So just find any bit of tree that's overhanging a public footpath and stand there and do not move. Um, you know, and uh, uh, that's uh, uh, it's good, good things to know, basically. Sorry, to add on that as well, um, I think a lot of people are under the misconception that environmental law in a way kind of incorporates nature of rights, but through hearing you talk and discussing various cases, I can see that they're two distinct um, entities. So in what way can people learn about rights of nature more than environmental law? Because I feel like environmental law is kind of the poster boy if you get what i mean in a sense like i mm. thought that i personally am interested in environmental law and before this talk and this podcast episode of you i didn't i thought that the way to change the world was through environmental law but rights of nature is obviously very impressive so how can people educate themselves more to learn more about the rights of nature and not just think mm. that environmental law is this I, I, sh I should say as well and i you know, want to be clear about this mm. you know if if you want to protect nature, one of the best ways to do it is through environmental law. Mm. You know, if, if we get loads, if we can get loads of students who love and want to protect the earth to be trained up in environmental law, that would be incredible. Because yeah. then, then, then we can launch them back against the developers who come with all these environmental law, planning law, all this is 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 frontline stuff on on what is becoming a bit of a war to protect nature. And the more students that want to do that and are trained up in it, great. But only if they're doing it with the intention, I think, of protecting nature rather than just acting for either side for money. Mm -hmm. But if, if you want to protect the earth, you, yeah, one of the best ways you could do it is to train in environmental law and do whatever you can within that field to protect nature. And if you want to learn about rights of nature, there's lots of um, lots of books and well, it's quite it's quite a fast developing area. Um, and as well as learning about it, you can actually um, you can shape it, which is quite magical. It's a whole new area of jurisprudence. We don't even really know what the rights would look like. You know, some people have started sketching out rights of rivers, but no one's even tried with trees yet, um, and or or birds or any aspect of nature. We we don't really know what it would look like entirely. Um, we can start we can start sketching it out. So actually, it's a really exciting area to be involved in. Um, if you want to um, learn more, there's different um, groups. So there's the Earth Law Centre. So you can follow these on Twitter and they'll point you to the links. There's the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, GAN. There's Stop Ecocide. There's Lawyers for Nature. Um, all these have Twitter presences and will regularly tweet if there's a particular Rights of Nature judgment or book out. Um, there's a few basic books. So there's Rights of Nature by David Boyd, or Wild Law by Cormac Cullinan. Um, and there's quite a few... Um, different articles and books which we're trying to collate actually as part of lawyers for nature into a sort of wild law library mm. um and if you want to get involved in learning um uh, more and also helping research then lawyers for nature is always on the lookout for student researchers to come and help us research different aspects of rights of nature so one of the things we're doing at the moment is um we're partnering with a major campaigning organization that wants to start advocating for the rights of nature and they're like what is going on around the world that we can support and so we need to research that. 
which you know no, no one's really doing that such at the moment you know that's that's exciting in itself like what is going on around the world and there are lots of developments happening quite quickly um which are interesting to learn from and especially a lot of jurisdictions are ahead of the uk yeah. um and so a lot of the things you can if we learn about what's happening elsewhere in the world we can then start applying that to here copying them effectively because they're often way ahead of where we are okay amazing and to add on that how do you think lawyers for nature will contribute to this change in the practice so lawyers for nature was initially set up as a um organization to try and give legal advice to on the on the ground grassroots groups which we we do do um but as i said earlier there's, there's really not enough we don't have enough resources to help everyone that needs us because there's so many people it's and obviously we're acting voluntarily um so we're now moving towards trying to write sort of more guides to assist groups so they can have a basic understanding of the legal process and a lot of the time I'd say eight out of 10 questions of grassroots nature protection stuff is sort of going over the same things almost, you know, um, there's a tree threatened in a town, local people want to save it, what do they do? The first eight steps of that often are often the same things. And we can just tell people like, this is how you set up a campaign. These are the laws you might break. This is how to crowdfund for a user review, you know, all this kind of stuff that we can repeat doing. Um, increasingly, Lawyers for Nature is moving towards the systemic issues around rights of nature rather than just a kind of firefighting approach i guess because we've learned that in the current system we're always going to be just fighting off individual cases fighting fires all the time and we need that systemic change so that's represented in a number of projects we're we're doing at the moment so as i mentioned earlier that project working with a campaigning organization about supporting different rights of nature campaigns um we're we're starting to um, work with companies to, to look at what rights of nature within company structures would look like. And again, that could have a huge impact, a huge change, um, because if we can get a, a model that works, different companies can adopt that, and that can create a, a big systemic change. Obviously, it would be voluntary, but then companies in the current climate might want to be seen to be acting, acting for nature. And then we're also uh, looking at um, working with other organisations in this field to come up with a litigation strategy for um, rights of nature. So again, going away from this kind of firefighting approach, actually saying, how do we start to get rights of nature um, before the courts? And again, that, that may not be through always winning, but actually just getting it in front of the courts is in itself sometimes a campaign win, you know? And that often takes creativity and imagination. So um i actually weirdly enough own a piece of river um which is odd in itself that we allow people to <laughs> yeah, there we are and like i so i i i really want to transfer ownership of the river to itself and that's quite an interesting like legal how, how do we do that is it possible i don't know i i don't think it is in the current land reg system but even that's quite interesting like sending applications to land registry trying to register the river in its own name and when they say no be like why <laughs> and publicize that makes people think right um and then if not, I don't know, set up a company in, like, in the name of the river and sell the land to the company and then get the company to sue the water company that's polluting it. You know, there's that that kind of creativity is, I think, really interesting and taking things from a systemic approach rather than a kind of constantly firefighting approach. Um, and to me, that's very interesting for students because it's, 
you know, there aren't that many areas of law where you're not just constantly regurgitating something someone else has said, <laughs> which I, I know I found very tedious in my degree, just like writing an article about other people's articles. Um, this is, you know, coming up with stuff, you know, formulating a whole new area of law, um, which to me is a very interesting and fascinating challenge. As, aside from the fact that, you know, I really, um, obviously believe in the, the reasons for it and that stems my love for nature but even just the kind of that that interesting challenge of creating a whole new jurisprudence and fundamentally shifting the entire way that a society and legal system views nature so fascinating thing to do isn't it sorry great thanks uh so I think you all like somehow already answered this question, but if you want to delve more on it, please do. Um, do you think there's any space today in, in the UK to establish rights of nature through law and how the Brexit has affected this opportunity or possibility? Um, I think obviously Brexit has affected environmental laws. Um, I feel like rights of nature stuff was at such an infancy that actually um, I, I don't necessarily know whether it will have that much impact. The main thing I'm actually a bit sad about is um, we're working with um, Mumta Issa from, um, uh, from Nature's Rights um, and they're trying to um, get rights for nature at a European level, which obviously we can't be a part of because we're not a part of Europe, but trying to get it into the European treaties, which is quite a fascinating, quite a fascinating project. Um, and in terms of the ability to get rights of nature in the UK, I mean, the way I look at it is it's, the UK is in many ways the origin of the current system that is destroying the earth, which is one of, um, private property rights and viewing nature as private property which is a very uh, originated particularly in England in the um, 17th and 18th centuries and then was exported via colonialism around the world that system is obviously completely at odds with every indigenous system of thought which doesn't regard nature as as property as such but rather as a um as, as, a, as a sacred thing a lot of the time um and we were largely responsible for for spreading that and we then have a duty to try and correct that, try and change that. But that is not going to be easy because it's so deeply embedded within our system um, that nature is property and can be dealt with and destroyed at the whim of whoever owns it. Um, but that, for me, makes the challenge more interesting, right, and also more important. And I don't pretend that we're going to have mainstream legal successes on rights of nature anytime soon you know if, if i go into the high court and say i believe a tree has rights then you know <laughs> to, to, i don't know I, it might even be so mad they wouldn't even bother informing the bar standards board um they're just like kind of subtly just like kind of hook me out of the entrance it's like okay off you go um you know so that kind of uh that kind of case is probably a long way off but i think you can start tackling it obliquely in a way that makes people think and question the current system and, and think differently so you know if you can if, if there's a case to be brought in law against the water companies for polluting the rivers how can you 
either bring that in the name of the river or even just say you're bringing it in the name of the river you know that has that has a power and it has it has an effect um and when i've been you know negotiating with the water companies um thames water particularly for the river that i live on um you know I, i say to them that i hold the river to be sacred and that it has rights and that i will uphold those rights in whatever i do that has a power even if it doesn't necessarily have a you know a massive legal um foundation to it in the current time and i believe that we can do similar things throughout environmental law if we start putting current cases and current ways of doing things through the prism of rights of nature that has a power and it has a i believe it will have an effect in shifting people's attitudes so it's it's a complex one it's it's not i don't think we can go into the high court tomorrow and start claiming rights of nature because you know it doesn't have much of a legal foundation but i do believe we can start right here right now to bring those rights into people's minds and start acting on them obliquely if that makes sense yeah yeah um, actually there is a case in new zealand that the maori people try to claim a river and it's very interesting because they actually are contending about the sense of property because they have this vision this indigenous vision that the river and they are like a whole so they don't own the river they are one with the river so finally they through law not through like a case they established this system of governance where the indigenous community take care of the river but still like the minerals underlying the river and the property of the river it still belongs to the crown so it's yeah it's like although you know the the, the wanganui river um situation that was a very successful rights you know one of the most successful rights of nature um case studies from around the world it's incredible and actually what's interesting about the wanganui river was that New Zealand is very similar to our system it's probably the most similar system they were still using our house of lords as the final court of appeal so final appeal court um up until quite recently um so they're a very similar common law system and, and they they did get they have got rights of nature enshrined in law but crucially it was it was a matter of politics and not of law in a sense because it was came from the New Zealand parliament they just passed a new act that wouldn't have worked going through the New Zealand courts I don't think and of course the only real reason that worked politically was because of the indigenous voice of the maori who demanded that their river be granted rights in return for their peace settlement with the crown um so we don't have the same voice in this country um or do we <laughs> um yeah this is what i want to challenge people yeah we we don't have um we don't have an indigenous um uh peoples of this country but maybe um maybe we are those people and maybe those people are anyone in this country who loves these rivers loves this land loves these trees no matter where they're from in the world if you love if you love this this land and the nature that is here maybe you're the indigenous voice to protect it and if enough people began to think like that and act upon it I think the political changes could happen quite quickly to have a similar situation as in the Wanganui River for the River Thames or the River Severn or the River Wye or maybe even the River Roding which I'm currently on. <laughs> That would be amazing. Well, and one last question to close. <laughs> um but this is like purely uh, related to rights of nature because 
being advocating for rights of nature is having sort of an ecocentric perspective of our relationship with it. But like then I was, I'm just thinking of cases when we try to represent the interest of like a chimpanzee or orangutans and stuff like that. So I think it's, it's quite anthropocentric to say, okay, this is what the chimpanzee needs when we really, do, we are not the chimpanzee and we don't really know. Like, I think it's, it's quite anthropocentric to set what the animal or the river or whatever needs, you know? So how can we bridge that anthropocentric, ecocentric uh, dilemma, if you wish? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, and I've, <laughs> but by going onto Twitter in the last couple of years, I, I've started to come across people who actually think I'm uh, not radical enough. <laughs> Which will be news to quite a lot of people in the mainstream environmental law thing. But yeah, there are people who are, who are further along the journey than me saying, well, actually, even rights of nature is a human made concept that we're applying mm -hmm. nature and where effectively humans are acting as kind of, yeah, loco parentis, like guardians of nature. Uh, what do you think about that? And my answer is, is I guess that for better or worse, the human economic and legal system that currently exists is having huge, uh, overwhelming impacts on the natural world. That that is that is a reality that is happening. And as things stand, there's no way, as I can see it practically, that we can we can stop those impacts, um, short of some kind of human extinction event. <laughs> so we have to within that system recognize the rights of nature in order for it to have a voice however imperfect and however even if it's channeled through humans we need that river and those trees to have some kind of voice in our legal system because without it they're completely completely screwed but i don't necessarily no i, I don't think that that is the 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 end goal you know mm. an end goal would be a system that where we are kind of a much more symbiotic system where we're acting in true um, uh, balance and, and a proper relationship with nature and with the earth. But the point is, we are so far away from that that I don't think anyone can really imagine what that system would look like mm. at the moment. Like we can barely conceptualize rights of nature within a kind of anthropocentric system how we'd even get a kind of completely balanced system would be so far away from where we are that I, I struggle to conceptualize it. And actually I myself am probably so embedded in this, this system that I probably can't conceptualize it. So I, I would see rights of nature as a, as steps along the journey to that end goal rather than necessarily the end goal in itself. And that end goal may only reveal itself to us once we're far enough down that journey. And we, we can't see it from our position now, but it may eventually reveal itself. And that's why I believe rights of nature are, are important because they're, they're a step along that journey. And also crucially, they will stop a lot of the harm that we are currently committing on to the natural world, you know? And actually even, you know, even mainstream environmental law, you know, again, it's, it's better it's better than nothing um you know and I'd, I'd rather someone use environmental law to try and stop what destruction they can in this current system and then question it and go further you know um i i wish i knew what that eventual system would be but i i struggle <laughs> and i'm, I'm yeah, sure most people one. do yeah. yeah because how 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 do you begin to even have a system 
within the current paradigm where nature can speak for itself uh, one, isn't it? so the next the next best thing is to have humans that are have a duty of care towards it speaking for it which of course we recognize in lots of other contexts you know young children can't speak for themselves so we um so we have adults speak for them and we have a we have a duty you know um the overriding du care duty of care towards the child the rights of the child you know actually i think in a lot of cases it's quite morally complicated to say what a child wants <laughs> you know um but we but we try our best to roughly work it out and it's better than not having that there um because you know we, we don't exactly know what a child wants but it probably doesn't want to be you know starved beaten or, or killed and, and we can say the same for nature right we don't know exactly what a river wants but we can have a guess that it probably doesn't want to be over abstracted filled with sewage and rubbish um and cut off from its floodplain and reduced with no trees or wildlife we can take we can hazard a guess at that yeah. and start with that and then see where we go and it's like more detailed working out exactly what it wants um, the last question, do you have any advice for aspiring lawyers, law, law grad students and the new generation who want to advocate for the environment or practice environmental law or law of nature? Yeah, I mean, do it. And <laughs> <laughs> um, we really need more um, nature lawyers, lawyers for nature, earth lawyers, wild lawyers. We, we need you. Um, there's key practical issues about how you make that happen. Um, and I recognise the difficulties around getting training and that kind of thing, and that that may entail sacrifice. You know, um, I I recognise that the current system means that moral purity is is quite difficult to come by, and if you have to go and do your training at a big city law firm in order to become the nature lawyer you want to be, or you know, at a chambers that is an environmental law chambers, but which acts largely for those destroying the environment. You know sometimes you you have to do that and what i would say is to really hold your intention during that time it's very easy to get sucked into that system um and to, and many people start with that best intention. i'm going to go and get my training do it for a year or two and then i'm gonna i'm gonna go and advocate for the earth and then you know the years pass by the mortgage starts you know it's like oh i can't get away now you've really got to like take that intention that you're going in there to protect the earth to advocate for nature and and hold that maybe even do a ceremony maybe even literally write it down and bury it in a box somewhere in a piece of nature that matters to you you know really really go ceremonial on it or if not like hold it really strong within your heart um do what you need to do to get that training and then um do what you can to advocate for nature because uh as the late great polly higgins said the earth needs a good lawyer. Can I agree more? Well, thank you, Paul. It's, it's been very insightful and a very enjoy, enjoyful as well conversation with you. Um, hope you enjoy yourself as well. Yeah, yeah. I like I you know I love talking about it. I, I always um find my ideas kind of generate and uh, kind of uh, strengthen them from these conversations. So it's always good to talk. Again, thank you so much. It was inspiring to you talk and well, I yeah, much respect for what you do and what your film does. Thank you very much everyone for listening and keep 
uh, following the next episodes that we'll be posting soon. Bye.